Turn with me to a couple of places. Not John yet. Lord willing, next week we'll be back in John 15, which I'm looking forward to. But this morning, turn to Matthew 28, and then maybe put something in your Bible and go to Ephesians chapter 3. So Matthew 28, Ephesians chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, now own Your Word to us as we consider Your calling, Your calling of us to be a congregation, Your calling of us as Your church to be faithful to Christ's commands and to be led by no other authority than His. We ask in Your name. Amen. To lay a foundation for this morning's message, I want to start off with a question. The question is the title of the message, What is the place of the church in God's plan? I ask that because I sometimes hear Christians talk about the church as if it was a secondary issue for believers. You know, something nice, but not necessarily necessary. I mean, we know that God has a plan to redeem a people for Himself. We know that from before the foundation of the world, He has had this plan and has been intent on bringing a great host from every nation, tribe, and tongue into one redeemed body, as Ephesians 1 declares. But where exactly does the church fit into that? Is it necessary... Uh, for God's overall plan? Is it necessary for me as an individual? Or is it optional? And again, I ask the question because there have been voices over the last ten years, really longer than that, but especially the last ten years, saying that the church is ultimately no big deal. Uh, George Barna, known as a um, church growth guru, uh, has said about ten years ago, millions of believers have moved beyond the established church and have chosen to be the church instead. Right? So I don't, I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need the established church. I can just be the church. And true, we could say, a person can be saved apart from the meeting of the church. Right? You don't have to be in a church meeting to be saved. Someone can witness to you on the street, maybe rob, and, and, and share the gospel with you, and you come to know Christ. And then I've got a Bible. I can read it. I can hear preaching online. I've got friends who are Christians. We can meet for coffee and discuss theology. I can attend even worship virtually. So is the church even necessary? Well, let's consider what God says in His Word on a very fundamental level. In Ephesians 3, where we start, Paul is giving testimony to his calling as the apostle of the Gentiles. We see that in the first six verses. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, right? Not the Jews in Israel, but the Gentiles from all nations, on your behalf, he says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that has been given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow 
heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You notice he mentions the the mystery of Christ in verse 6. Now what is that? The mystery. Well, a mystery in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, describes something that was hidden in the past by God, but now has been revealed clearly in the coming of Christ. In this case, he's talking about this plan God has for the Gentiles, hidden away in the Old Testament. He didn't really focus on the salvation of Gentiles in the Old Testament, but now clearly revealed with the coming of Christ. And so what is that mystery? Verse 6, he says it plainly. This mystery is, see that's a clue, right? (laughs) This mystery is that the Gentiles, that you and me, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the Gospel. And so God has always, Paul says, intended the salvation of the Gentiles through Christ. God's plan has always been to bring us together in one body. And what is that body? It's the church. Paul uh, Paul continues, verse 7-9, through Of this gospel, this saving gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power to me. Though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. By the way, what a a thing that is. Think about who Paul is, this old Pharisee who despised Gentiles, would walk across the street not to have to look in the eyes of a Gentile. And God plucks him out of the fire and says, now go get the Gentiles. I love that. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now notice that Paul says in verse 8, grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what he told me to go do. Now, question, why? Why was Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? Again, he tells us, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized, brought to light in Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice two things. Here's why he's preaching the gospel like this. One, because it's God's eternal purpose in Christ to gather a people for His praise from every nation, tribe, and tongue into one body. Second, notice that it is through the church, specifically he says, that God intends to do this. Through the church. In fact, he'll repeat it down in verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's the point. We're just laying a foundation. Here's the point. It has always been God's plan to display His glory in the gathered church. That's what God has always been aiming at. A people gathered for His glory to know Him and to make Him known in this world. 
And, and I say gathered because that is the focus in the New Testament. Think about the book of Acts. Paul goes throughout the known world preaching the gospel. People believe. He doesn't just say, now you're a Christian. You are the church. You know, go on about your business or go do this or that. He says, no. He gathers them into local bodies. He appoints leadership for them in those local bodies. He begins the process of teaching and training in those local bodies so that out of those local bodies will grow the continual explosion of the gospel of grace from place to place to place. So how important is the local church in God's plan? I would go so far as to say it is God's plan. That everything God has planned for salvation, He has planned to do in and through His church. That that all that Christ has done in salvation has been done for the sake of His church. If you remember, we even saw that at the end of our passage on Easter in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. He says, He, God, put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So it is through the church that God has chosen to display His glory in salvation and to call to Himself a great host of men, women, and children from every nation, tribe, and tongue to belong to Him. So how important is the church to God? So important that Ephesians 5 and more explicitly Revelation 21 call the church the Bride of Christ. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that the church itself is the object of Christ's eternal, unchanging love. She is His bride. It means that we, as the church, are the focus of His unending devotion. All that Christ does, He does for and through His church. This body of called out men and women, chosen in eternity, drawn together by the gospel for His purposes, made to proclaim His glory, growing in grace in His presence, sharing together in the life of His Spirit. That's who we are. How important is the church to the plan of God? It is the plan of God for calling out and making disciples. That's what I want us to focus on this morning. That was all introduction. Now turn to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And it is here in Matthew 28 that I want you to see, well, first of all, the authority for who we are and what we do as a church. And that authority is Christ Himself. Matthew 28, 16. This is after the resurrection. It says, Now the eleven disciples, because Judas is gone, of course, the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. This is all fresh, mind-blowing. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Notice Jesus comes to them. He takes the initiative. And He comes with all authority. He comes to them as Lord of the church. He comes to give them their marching orders. Because He is the one who went to the cross alone to conquer death, hell, and the grave. 
He is the one who rose victoriously on the third day to defeat every authority and to lay claim to this broken world as His own personal possession. And because He did that, Philippians 2.9 says, God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, on heaven and earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so 1 Corinthians 15 says, He will reign until every enemy is put under His feet. He is reigning now. He is on a mission of conquest. Every nation, tribe, and tongue will be brought under His final authority. That's what He's doing. Um, Russian dictators will be brought under His authority. Little woman down the street will be brought under His authority. Gang members will be brought under His authority because He reigns. Abraham Kuyper said it this way, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign Lord, does not cry, Mine. And here's the thing. It is this Christ, it is this King, who has called us together as His church and given us our mission. Not because he's done market research, you know, put his finger up into the air to determine which way the cultural wind is blowing and, and what people like so that he can, he can give them what they want. No, no, because he is Lord, whether we like it or not. <laughs> and we are his people, and we do like it if we're his. And we must obey. And so my point is, if this Christ has given his church a commission to follow, we must follow it. And where His commission contradicts someone's marketing strategy or the latest cool fad that's making the rounds, we have to remember who our authority is. And it's Christ who says in Matthew 16, I will build My church. And so with that in mind, second then, what has Christ commanded us as His church to do? What does He say? Again, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So what is the command here? See, now if you said go, you're a good Baptist. You're just probably not the best exegete of Scripture. Go is not the command. Go itself. Go is part of the command. right? You've got to go in order to reach the nations. And so going is important and we send and support those who go. But go is not really the main point. Go is more the means of accomplishing the main point. As you're going, do this. I mean, think about the context. Jesus is standing there on the mountain with His disciples. He's about to leave them and go back to the Father. So, of course, they're not going to stay right there on the mountain. They're going to go everywhere He sends them. And as they go, they are, fulfill, they are to fulfill this command, make disciples of all nations. That's the command. Make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? We've talked about this before. A disciple 
is in the ancient world, especially a disciple was someone whose life was committed to following a master. A disciple is a learner. That's what the word methetes actually means. Someone who is committed to being a learner. Someone who's left everything to follow and learn specifically from a particular master. In those days, you didn't go to a school to learn. You went to a master and you began to follow him. Which is why Jesus is always saying things like, Come, follow me. Or, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Because the point for the disciple is to be with Him. Right, so, so Jesus didn't call people just to make a decision about Him. Right? Are, are, you, are you thumbs up or thumbs down on Jesus? You know, sign the card, go your way. He doesn't do that. He calls us to become disciples. Followers. People who follow Him daily. People whose lives are centered on Him. And now as He is going back to the Father, He commands us to do the same. We call people to come with us as disciples of Jesus. So again, Jesus didn't say, go collect converts. He said, go make disciples. Men and women whose hearts have been opened by the life-giving power of the Gospel so that by grace they turn from their sin to embrace Christ as Lord and begin to follow Him in a new life. Have you personally heard that call so that you've heard the Gospel calling you to recognize the sins that have separated you from a holy God? You've you've seen through that Gospel proclaimed that your life is a mess. That you yourself have nothing to commend you before God. There's, there's no way to save yourself. Your record can never come up to His standard. Not even close. Have you heard that bad news leading to the good news that Christ went to the cross for sinners like you? Christ took the place of those who have failed. He paid the full price and says, Repent of your sin, come and follow Me, and you have My righteousness that fits you for heaven, and you'll have My new life which which leads you in the way that honors God from here on out. Have you personally come to that place? That's where it all starts. Hearing and responding to the Gospel. There's so much more we could say about that, but I want to keep us focused on this question. But if, if that's not you yet, think of that question. But here's our question as a church. Does it matter then how we do this? Does it matter how we as a church make disciples? In other words, did Jesus give the command, make disciples and then leave it to us to work out you know, how we go about that? So so really, anything goes as long as we can see results, get people to sign a card, show up next Sunday. Or did He, along with the command, tell us what to do to fulfill that command? Charles Finney, if you know that name, is considered by many today to be the father of modern evangelicalism in many of its current practices, and I don't say that as a compliment He is the one who invented the altar call in the 1800s, if you didn't realize it, this idea of playing soft music and and, and wooing people to walk down an aisle and calling that salvation. That's a pretty new thing in the history of Christianity, um, or at least professing Christianity. And, And Finney's purpose in the altar call was really to pressure people into making a quick decision on the spot. He thought that was important because he thought 
that sinners had it within themselves to change their own hearts and bring themselves to Christ any time they chose to do so. And so, he said, we have to find methods that will excite the hearer, that will persuade the hearer, that will woo the hearer, and anything that we can do to bring them to that point of decision, that's good. And so, he came up with what were called his new measures. Things like soft music playing in the background, the dimming of the lights, working on the emotions of the hearer with, with, with stories and things like that, all to get them to a certain point and frame of mind that they would be persuadable. And as long as we get results, he said, hey, that's good. When questioned about his new measures by those who knew Scripture better than him, Finney said, the Great Commission just says go. It does not prescribe any specific forms of how we should go about this. It doesn't tell us what we should do to make disciples. The object, he said, was to make the gospel known as simply and efficiently as possible so that we can gain the attention and secure the obedience of the greatest number of hearers. But he maintained the Bible itself doesn't tell us how we should do that. Now that was Finney's perspective. It is still the perspective of many evangelicals today. It's how you end up with motocross in the sanctuary in a video I saw not too long ago. Or magic shows uh, that supposedly are the point of the gospel. Or um, you know, click marketing tricks and smoke and mirrors and steam and whatever it is that will hold people's attention and get them to make the kind of decision I want. But again, the question is, does... Does the Great Commission simply tell us to go, but leave it to us what to do once we get there, as long as we have results? Or does Christ actually make it clear what we as the church are supposed to be doing on the way to making disciples? So that's the third thing we want to look at. Does the method matter? Again, what did Jesus say? Let's listen to it. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go therefore and make disciples. That's where many stopped. That's where Finney stopped. But we can't stop there because then he immediately says, baptizing them and teaching them. Now, this is not the place for a Greek lesson this morning. But Finney certainly could have used one. Because these words baptizing and teaching are participles which connect us back to the command make disciples in a very important way. You could even translate this make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and teaching them. Uh, if you imagine trying to give instructions to someone here in this room who's a little bit you know, dense, a little slow on the uptake, and they don't, can't figure out how to leave the room, that's really, really dense, I understand, but just go with me. You might say something like this. You leave this room by opening that door and walking through it. Opening the door and walking through it are the way you leave the room. In the same way, baptizing and teaching are the way you make disciples. In other words, it's clear Jesus does give a method along with the command. Make disciples. How? By baptizing and teaching. 
So here's what I want you to see. The command, that command that he gives here is central to the church's mission. All of it. And only the church can fulfill the mission he gave. See, this is not a command to the individual to go off on their own and try to accomplish this. This is something Jesus commanded to His church, specifically the apostles who represented the presence of the church. No individual and no other organization can take this up and accomplish it. It is something Christ has given to His church and promised to work through His church to do. And so what does He command us as His church to do in obedience to Him on the way to making disciples? First of all, He commands us to make disciples by baptizing them. Now, surely you would recognize this is not an individual exercise. Luke can dunk himself in water all day long if he wants to, but that's not baptism. It's just a bath. Baptism takes place as the church gathers to recognize the miracle God has done through the preaching of the gospel in bringing someone to Himself. And so we go out preaching the gospel, telling people what Christ has done in His death, burial, and resurrection, and as they believe, first thing we do, we baptize them. That's step one of gathering them into the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So we're baptized into this expression of Christ. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free. This diversity of people brought to grace by faith. We were all made to drink of the one Spirit, their salvation. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Brought together, recognized through this symbol of baptism. But, but notice how this is a community affair. We, the church, embrace new believers through baptism as we celebrate their incorporation into the body of Christ. This is why earlier generations called baptism a sacrament. That's not a Roman Catholic word, by the way. It recognizes that which is a seal or a sign of something. They saw baptism as a sign and seal that visibly sets the new believer apart from the world into the church via Christ's death and resurrection. Baptism marks us out as belonging to Christ and to one another in union with Christ in His dying and rising again. Right? Romans 6. Do you not know? By the way, notice that. Paul is addressing you as a Christian saying, you ought to know this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look at even the symbol of baptism. The word baptized, by the way, means immerse. I'll just say that as a Baptist. So we are buried with Him through baptism. There's the symbol raised to walk in this newness of life. We've, we've been united with Him in a death like His and we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like his. And so baptism is a visible sign in the church of something bigger than just your individual conversion. It, it pictures your incorporation into Christ's body, the church. Acts 2 verse 38, as Peter preaches on Pentecost, he says, they say, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized. Notice the order, repent, baptized, and I will 
give oh, I shifted verses. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism pictures God calling out a people to Himself, changing their hearts through the gospel, making them one in Himself, then bringing them together in that one body, in the fellowship of His church, to follow Him for His glory. We start with baptism. Then, how do we make disciples? He says, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Notice that. Teaching. Teaching is not given as an optional extra that some zealous Christians may wish to pursue, but others don't have to. It's not stage two or stage three of the Christian life. It is foundational to the Christian life for every Christian. Think about the invitations Jesus gives. For example, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me. Come to me all you who wear who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He calls you to come to Him and learn from Him. And where do you learn from Him? Well, if I'm going to learn from somebody, I need to be close to their body where they're speaking and moving and acting. And it is the church that is that body of Christ where He speaks and moves and acts. Christ gave the church as the appointed means of learning from Him and following Him. Ephesians 4.11 says explicitly, He, that is, God gave some to be apostles and prophets. There's the foundation of the church. And along with that, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ gave the church and teachers in the church and the body within the church for the building up and maturing of disciples. And so again, we notice that teaching is central to our mission of making disciples. It's not all there is to it, but it is essential, which is one of the reasons, just as an aside, that elders must be apt to teach. 1 Timothy says, because teaching is so central to our mission. So let me just show you then how this worked in the New Testament in the book of Acts as the church comes into existence for the first time. Acts chapter 2, it is the day of Pentecost. Peter, filled with the Spirit, goes into the streets, begins to preach the Gospels along with the others who are bearing witness. And what happens? Acts chapter 2, verse 37 says, The crowd that was drawn together heard the Gospel, were pierced to their hearts, and began to cry out, What shall we do? Peter answers, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, Everyone whom the Lord calls to Himself. So everyone who the Lord calls through the Gospel, they need to follow this pattern, He says. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So those who received His Word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. But notice what they began to do immediately as the church takes shape for the first time. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. What do we see? Look at the pattern. First, there is teaching. They taught them all that Christ had commanded them. Second, they united new believers together in the fellowship of the church, beginning with baptism. Verse 41. And then they celebrated the presence of Christ among them through worship, through the breaking of bread, which refers here to the Lord's Supper and prayer. Verse 42. In other words, think about it, looking at the picture, they did exactly what Christ had commanded them to do in Matthew 28. What does the church do? It gathers to celebrate Christ's presence, to hear His Word and respond with worship, and then they go out to declare Him as Lord. Because this is how Jesus makes disciples, how Christ makes disciples. He comes to us through the Word and sacrament to transform us, and then He sends us out. And then notice the promise He makes right at the end of that commission. Again, Matthew 28, verse 20, right at the end, He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you. Jesus promises to be present in the midst of His church as it gathers and goes in His name. He is present because He is the one who is bringing this about. He is the one who is among us making disciples as we walk in obedience to Him. Behold, I am with you always. I'm with you. Funny thing about the English language, I've mentioned this before, in English we're not very good at distinguishing between you singular, that is you off by yourself doing your thing, and you plural, which is you know us together as a group. We don't distinguish that. Well, of course, unless you're a southerner, right? You've got that y'all thing. Right? That helps. But most of the time, when we read something in the Bible like this, which is in formal English, we don't necessarily grasp whether the you is talking to us as an individual or as a plural. And we're tempted to read a passage like this as if it's saying, Christian, I will be with you by yourself as an individual while you do your part to fulfill my commission. And that is not actually what it's saying. Again, you've got to have a little bit of southerner in you here. And use the y'alls. Behold, I am with y'all. You, the church, whom I've just given this command to, I'm with you to the very end of the age because I'm the one in your midst doing the work through your obedience. And so this, is, this verse is not about personal comfort. Jesus will always be with me as an individual, though there are other verses that do that, so you can, you can hold to that. It's a good doctrine. It's just not what this is saying. No, this is a Christ-exalting, church-triumphant reality He's giving us. He's saying, I am with you as my church as you follow my command here. As you gather in my name to celebrate my presence through the Lord's Supper and baptism and worship, as you proclaim my word both within and without, I am there with you doing exactly what I promised to do, building my church through you. 
Raising the dead spiritually through the Gospel. Giving new life to those who believe. Breaking the power of sin. Drawing people to Myself. I'm taking sin-sick people and recreating them into a new God-exalting army of disciples who will serve Me. And understand, only Christ can do that. But He does it through His appointed means as we gather to do what He has commanded and then scatter to call others to come follow Him with us. That's what the church does. And that's why the church does not need to find new measures. What the church must do is be faithful to Christ's ancient commands. We don't need the church to become less church-like and more entertaining to the masses like a spiritual workout center or, 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 or dazzling display of man's creativity. What we need is to be more like the church Christ established with a clear focus on word and sacrament in worship and fellowship. We don't need pastors who are less pastoral like cool life coaches giving really hip TED Talks with great hair and expensive tennis shoes. We need pastors who patiently devote themselves to the Word and prayer as they lead the people to know and walk together with Christ. We don't need members who are isolated from one another as each seeks his or her own private spirituality. We need Christians who are united together in one body, joyfully gathering to embrace Christ through word and worship, helping each other follow Christ. Believers who are, who are joyful to come celebrate Him and then go out to proclaim Him to be led, to be fed, and then to go and bear witness to Christ in the world. That's basic Christianity. And it's, it's, it's not exciting if what you're looking for is worldly excitement. Some have even called it boring. But it's in the midst of that so-called boring that the reality and the power and the joy and the truth of Christ is sinking into the bones, making us new creatures, binding us to Him and to one another, and working its miraculous work through us. Amen. And so church, let's renew our call to simple, boring Christianity. To be His church, doing as He commands, trusting Him for the results. Now, before we move to the Lord's Supper, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be practical matters we need to consider, decisions we have to make. One of those decisions, as you're aware, um, is what we face with what, what to do with our building. As God's blessed us, um, we've, we've, we've hit the wall in a number of places, quite literally. The church is not this building. right? Don't ever think of the church in terms of a building. But we do use a building. This is where we gather to worship and teach and hear God's Word. If He called us to do it, we could survive without a building. But He has blessed us with a place that we can meet for fellowship encouragement, the teaching and training of families. So one question that we do have to ask is, does this building help us accomplish the purposes Christ is working through us, or has it become in any way a hindrance to that purpose? I mean, I just 
will ask you to pray through with me. Are we hindered when we can't all fit consistently together in one place to worship? Are we hindered when visitors and guests show up on a Sunday morning and end up in the fellowship hall uh, because they couldn't find a seat among us here? Or when our Sunday school rooms, especially children's rooms, are overly crowded? Or our fellowship hall will hold about two-thirds of us if we all decided to show up together? In other words, is the building imposing limits on our ability to do what Christ commands? And if so, what should we do about it? That's the matter of prayer. And so this is a question that we need to begin considering, and we'll at least start considering with our congregational meeting as we seek the Lord together. Now, this is not the primary question. It's not the biggest question, but it is a question. And so we are calling you to pray with us just for wisdom. And we'll explain more about that later. Before we do that, let's do set our attention back on Christ who is present with us according to His promise this morning. And the Lord's Supper is the symbol He has given us to remind us of His presence so that we do keep our focus on Him. And so if our brothers would come and prepare the table... We are going to set our focus and our attention upon Christ as we end our service. This symbolic meal that we eat week after week is a reminder to us of two things. First, it's a reminder of our union with Christ in His death. That's the center of it, right? Second, it is is a reminder of our union with each other in Christ's death. If you think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? Is Is it not a share in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation? Is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many, speaking to us as the church, We are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so the bread and the cup symbolize our union together as one church through faith in Christ. We take this bread and we drink this cup, and as we do so, we look around and see that indeed we are brothers and sisters in one faith because of what Christ has done. And then, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, that because we are one, the reason we are one is because Christ died for our sins. The reason we are one is because we are bound together to Him and therefore bound together to one another. We didn't forge this bond. He did. And so not only do we look around and see one another, we look up and we see Him. And we see that Christ died to save sinners who placed their faith in Him through His death, burial, and resurrection. If that's you this morning, if you are someone who have seen your sin, turned by repentance and faith to trust in Christ, and you're walking with Him in, 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 in faithfulness, you know, as best as you know how, uh, and in fellowship with this church or a church of like faith, if that's you, we invite you to join with us. Uh, you, you can't phone it in. You've got to be present for this. But we invite you to, to join us in this meal. 
if that's not you or you're not sure whether or not you are trusting Christ, we, we ask you to wait and watch while you consider your sin and what Christ has done for sinners. And, that, and I'm really serious. This is a, what a wonderful time as, as you are among us. And we're so glad, whoever you are, we're glad you're here. But that you would consider, what does this mean? And what would it mean for me to, to turn from running my own life and being in charge to laying down at the feet of Jesus and trusting Him for what He's done and walking with Him in that new life that He alone can give. Because that's what we're celebrating. Nobody here in this room is saying, I'm taking this bread and cup because you know what? I'm such a good person. That's in your mind. Don't take it. You're sinning. And I mean that in all seriousness. You will face a holy God for that kind of sin. But with humility and wonder, we take the cup and we take the bread knowing that Christ died for this sinner, rose on the third day, and gives life to those who trust Him. And so, Father, as we celebrate, would You give us grace to believe Christ, to rejoice in His finished work, and to have assurance that His salvation has only bound us to Him as Lord, but bound us together in one body for His purposes. And Lord, help us to live out those purposes. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So we'll take these symbols. You'll hold on to them. And then we will celebrate together to end our service.